All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 25 for April 2021. Some Worcester men you may not know. William Roch Worcester, John W. Worcester, Langhorn Wesley Worcester, Rodman Worcester, and John Caspar Worcester. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about five male members of the Wister family interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery who have amazing stories. It is very easy to get lost in the Wister family. Anyone familiar with Philadelphia history probably knows about Caspar Wistar, who founded the Wistar Institute and whose ashes are displayed there in an urn, and author Owen Wister, who wrote the first Western novel, The Virginian. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I talked about him in an earlier podcast. But this was a large family. There are 40 Wisters and 30 Wistars buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, along with three Wisters at West Laurel Hill. Today, I'm going to talk about four Worcester brothers and one of their sons. They're all buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. William Roch Worcester was lawyer, soldier, and founder of the Germantown Cricket Club. John Worcester was founder and manager of a major ironworks and a bank. He was also a Civil War soldier. Langhorn Worcester was a colonel with the Bucktail Regiment during the Civil War. He was shot through the mouth at the Battle of Gettysburg. And Rodman Worcester, the youngest, ran away from home to become a drummer boy. John Caspar Worcester, son of William Roch, was considered the Dean of Horticulturalists in the United States. I will talk about all five of these Philadelphia men in the April edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. It is very easy to get lost in the Wisters and the Wistars. Kaspar Wooster, the eldest child of Hans Kaspar and Anna Katharina, was 21 years old when he landed in Philadelphia on 16 September 1717. He had listened to the call of adventure and had come to America to seek his fortune. He had only one pistarine, equivalent to nine pence, in his pocket and his rifle. He was a bright and enterprising lad, and in due time, he secured steady employment with a brass button manufacturer. The clerks of the period spelled his name Wistar, W-I-S-T-A-R. His brother, Johannes Wooster, joined him in Philadelphia in 1727 and became acquainted with John Bartram. At a court in September 1740, Caspar Wistar and his brother John Wister were naturalized as subjects of King George II. They were listed in the record as Quakers. 18th century documents used the names Wistar and Wister interchangeably for both the senior and the junior lines. In 1744, John Wister erected at Germantown a two-story mansion initially called Wister's Big House, but subsequently Grumblethorpe, because, as a descendant said, whenever the family met, there was discord. It was the first country seat created by a wealthy Philadelphia gentleman and was located six miles from the city. Now a museum, that branch of the Worcester family lived at Grumblethorpe for the next 160 years. If you have a chance to visit, take note of the bloodstain on the floor 
from the body of General James Agnew, who died in the house during the Battle of Germantown in 1777. We will not talk about this branch of the family today, as they are not buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Now, John's grandson, William, married into the Logan family in 1826, and he was presented with Belfield Mansion. This had originally been built by Charles Wilson Peel, whom I talked about in podcast number 22. It was here at Belfield that William Wister and Sarah Logan Fisher Wister raised six boys. It is four of them and one grandson that I talk about today. The oldest boy, William Roch Wister, was born at Belfield in 1827, the year after William and Sarah married. When he was old enough, he attended the University of Pennsylvania and graduated in 1845 at age 18. He then clerked for some Philadelphia lawyers until he was admitted to the bar in 1849. He practiced law from his home for the rest of his life, becoming very good at his job. He became the solicitor and director of many esteemed organizations, the National Bank of Germantown, the Hand in Hand Fire Insurance Company, the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society, and many others. But the fact is, if practicing law is all he did, I would probably end his biography right about now. But in 1842, he spotted some English mill workers playing cricket, and the event stayed with him. Cricket had come to Philadelphia from Great Britain, where its roots in the English countryside extended as far back as the late 1500s. Cricket clubs grew and competition between county teams expanded with increased financial interest in the sport after the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660. For much of its history, cricket both reached across and reflected the deep class divisions in British society. Despite its genteel image, cricket was never a sport played solely by the upper class. Many of the world's great cricketers rose from working-class origins. It was once said that, quote, when England needs a fast bowler, all it had to do was whistle down a Nottinghamshire coal mine, end quote. A cricket match involves two teams of 11 players playing on an elliptically shaped field. The field can range anywhere from 100 to 160 yards across. It's usually enclosed by a fence. The center of the field has a rectangular area 22 yards long and 12 yards wide called the pitch. That's within an infield. The infield is roughly a 30-yard radius. Each team has a bowler. This is similar to a pitcher in baseball. From the pitch area, the bowler throws the cricket ball overhand to an opposing batsman. The bowler attempts to get it out by either hitting the batsman in front of something called a wicket or knocking the bales off the wicket. Now, the wicket itself is made of three wooden poles that stick up from the ground about nine inches. Bales are wooden cross pieces that are set atop the stumps. Each batter is given an over. This is six balls bowled from each of the two creases, which are on opposite sides of the field. The batsman tries to strike the ball in any direction away from the opposing team's players so he can change places with his teammate in the opposite crease and score a run. You can score four runs by hitting a ball that reaches the boundary of the field and six runs by clearing it completely, that is, hitting it out of the park. A batsman does not have to run after hitting the ball. However, he can be put out by a fielder's catch or by a throw that strikes the bale of the wicket while the batsman is between the creases. As one batsman is put out, another takes his place until all 11 are put out, which ends the inning. Now with this knowledge under my belt, I got bold and I tried to read a news story about a recent match in the Times of London. I was soon hopelessly lost. Quote, Ravichandran Ashwin couldn't match his heroics in the second test where he had scored a sublime century. This time he played an ugly hoik across the line to be caught by Zach Crawley at deep square leg and leaving India reeling at 134 for nine. 
the innings, that's plural, the innings was wrapped up four overs later when Root took the wicket of Seamer Jasprit Bumrah, also playing a swipe across the line. The ball thumped into the pad, replay showing that it would have demolished leg stump. Obviously, I've got a ways to go to understand cricket. Anyway, after teaching his brothers the game, William Roch Wister founded the Junior Cricket Club at the University of Pennsylvania in the fall of 1842. Cricket thus became the first organized sport at Penn. Penn at that time was located on 9th Street, 9th and Market. They played their games across the river in Camden. And on 7 May 1843, the Junior Cricket Club played a match against Haverford College in the first intercollegiate sporting event in Penn's history. This club was very active until Worcester's 1846 graduation. Then a lack of leadership and of funding led to the disappearance of cricket from university life. It was revived in the 1860s. But after college, William continued playing with the Belfield Junior Cricket Club from 1840 to 1846. One of his prized possessions was a cricket bat that was presented by neurologist Silas Ware Mitchell with a high score of 44 runs painted on it in gold letters. William organized the Germantown Cricket Club in 1854. In 1855, a rival outfit, the Young America Club, was established, and some vigorously fought contests between the two teams took place. They later merged in 1889. Another match was played against a group who called themselves the Delphian Circumferaneous. That was a group of boys composed of students connected with the Reverend Dr. Hare's school. The Germantown Club's first field was William Wister's pasture at his estate, Belfield. It still exists at 411 Mannheim Street in Philadelphia. Now, this was about the same time that Harry Wright, who I talked about in podcast number seven, was making his switch from cricket to baseball. And just as Harry Wright, who's buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, is called, rightfully, by the way, the father of American baseball, William Roch Wister is called the father of American cricket. Cricket spread like wildfire, and by the time that the Civil War started, there were 43 cricket clubs in Philadelphia. In 1868, William married Mary Rebecca Eustace, a granddaughter of Reverend William Ellery Channing, noted New England scholar and clergyman who was one of the founders of the Unitarian Church. Their oldest daughter, Mary Channing Wister, married their cousin, author Owen Wister. Thus, she became Mary Channing Wister Wister. I will talk about her in a future podcast. Another daughter was Frances Ann Wister, one of the founders of the Philadelphia Orchestra and today considered the patron saint of Philadelphia historical preservation. She, too, will be covered in a future podcast. William Roch Wister was also a member of the Union League and the Military Order of the Loyal Legion. During the Civil War, he was a lieutenant colonel of the 20th Cavalry Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers, a group of a few hundred that he raised from Germantown, but which never saw action in battle. After the war, his wife Mary went south for a time to teach formerly enslaved people who were newly freed. William held very liberal religious beliefs. Despite his Quaker roots, he did not engage in rigid Quaker practices. He considered himself a Hicksite or moderate Quaker and often visited churches of other denominations. He encouraged his children to be religious, but he did not force them to choose a particular faith. In August 1911, William Roch Wister died at age 84 while visiting his cousin Owen Wister's house in Rhode Island. At the time of his death, he was the oldest member of the Philadelphia Bar and one of the oldest living alumni of the University of Pennsylvania. He is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section M, Lot 128. His wife outlived him by 33 years and died in 1944 at age 99. She is buried in the same plot.
when you think of ironworks, steel mills in Pennsylvania, it's probably Pittsburgh that comes to mind. But that didn't actually occur until the latter part of the 19th century. An area now forgotten is the Juniata Valley, which was and still is a major transportation corridor with trails. The Appalachian Trail actually runs through it. The Pennsylvania Turnpike, Canal, Railroad, Modern Highway, they all follow the Juniata River through central Pennsylvania. You may even be familiar with the tune, The Blue Juniata. It was written by Marion Dick Sullivan in 1844, the first commercially successful song written by an American woman. Sherman's troops sang it while marching through Georgia. Mark Twain mentioned it in his autobiography. Juniata seems to be in the middle of nowhere today, but in the 19th century, the iron and steel industry briefly stopped here and sent the name Juniata around the world. Over a 136-year period, there were 150 charcoal-fueled furnaces and forges producing iron that was regarded as among the finest in the world in Juniata and its surrounding nine counties. During its peak, the Juniata region produced nearly half of all iron in Pennsylvania and a fifth of the national output. One of the largest and finest factories was the Duncannon Iron Company in Perry County, south of Juniata. It was run for many years by the second oldest son of William Wister and Sarah Logan Fisher Wister, born at the family home Belfield in 1829, John Wister. John grew up in Germantown and was very well educated. He was taught privately at a school run by Bronson Alcott before then attending Germantown Academy in the early 1840s. At that time, Germantown Academy was felt to be the leading boys' school in the country. He didn't stay in school for long, though. At age 14, he moved to Duncannon in Perry County to become an apprentice at the ironworks of Fisher and Morgan. He lived there for nearly 50 years. The firm was owned by his grandfather, William Logan Fisher, and Charles Morgan, a popular businessman from New Bedford, Massachusetts. First settled in 1792, the Perry County Borough of Duncannon has never had a population of more than 2,000 people. It is today a key stop along the Appalachian Trail, which runs directly through the borough. It was also the home of lightning guider sleds, which were produced in Duncannon from 1904 to 1988. And despite its small size, Duncannon also has the notorious history of being the suicide capital of Pennsylvania. Around 50 of the residents of this small borough have ended their own lives from 1869 to modern times. The ironworks was located south of the mouth of the Juniata River in Duncannon. The first forge, built in 1827, was destroyed by fire in 1829 and quickly rebuilt. In 1837, a rolling mill was built on the site of the old forge. This factory was small and crude and could only produce about 5,000 tons of bar iron per year. Two years later, a nail factory was added that would make more than 25,000 kegs of nails per year. A flood damaged the plant in 1846, but it was again rebuilt. And by 1853, a 20-ton per day furnace was added to the works. Disaster struck yet again when the nail factory burned in 1860. And again, it was rebuilt and increased in size and was then making 100,000 kegs of nails annually. On February 1st, 1861, the facility reorganized as the Duncannon Iron Company. The old partnership of Fisher, Morgan and Company retained stock in the new company, but the principals retired and the firm came under the management of John Wister, who grew into one of the great iron manufacturers in Pennsylvania. For more than 50 years, he was connected with the iron works, starting as an errand boy and working his way up to being iron master. 
a term meaning head of the company, in this case president and general manager, a position he held during the last 27 years of his life. When he started working, the plant was still operated by water power. He was instrumental in introducing steam power, making the company one of the most important in the state. The furnace was remodeled yet again in 1880 to make 15,000 tons of iron per year, and it continued to operate until 1900. The nail mill, which made cut nails, was becoming obsolete as wire nails were becoming common. Rather than modernizing the plant, the owners closed it in 1908. Along the way, John met Sarah Tyler Boaz, daughter of Daniel Dick Boaz, a well-known local businessman. They married in Harrisburg in October 1864. They had four daughters, three of whom survived to adulthood and married well. Margaret married scientist Edward Meggs, while Elizabeth and Sarah Logan married wealthy businessmen Charles Stuart Wirtz and James Starr. Sarah Logan Worcester Starr went on to become a prominent member of Philadelphia society and a much-loved humanitarian. I will cover her in a future podcast on Worcester women. Now, like his brothers, John was a big fan of cricket. And like his brothers, James Roch, Langhorne, and Rodman, John partook in the Civil War. He was deputized by Pennsylvania Governor William F. Packer to guard the gaps in the mountains to the north of Gettysburg. To get through the mountains required a personal pass signed by John Wister. John was also organizer and first president of the Trout Run Water Company, director of the Dairy Coal and Coke Company, and the Wilmore Sonman Coal Company. He hunted and fished regularly and became an excellent ice skater with his children. In 1890, John moved back to the house where he was born, Belfield, to care for his elderly mother who died the next year. Since James already had his own house, Worcester, next door, John took over Belfield and lived there until he died in 1900 at the age of 70. His wife, three daughters, and four brothers were at his bedside. The old cricketer's last words were, the game is up. Old death has bowled me out. Much of the property at Belfield later became the campus of LaSalle University. John Wister is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, Lot 314 North, and 316-318. Langhorne Wesley Wister was the third son of William Wister and Sarah Logan Wister, born at Belfield in 1834. Like his older brothers, he was educated at Germantown Academy, but shortly after completing his studies, he moved to Duncannon to work under his brother William at the Duncannon Iron Company in Perry County. When war broke out in the spring of 1861, President Abraham Lincoln called for volunteers to put down the rebellion. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania found itself with more volunteers than it needed to meet its federal quota. 14 regiments had been requested. Pennsylvania came up with 25. Now, Secretary of War Simon Cameron was a political enemy of Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin. He refused to take the extra Pennsylvania men into federal service. Curtin decided to retain the extra men and organized, trained, and equipped them at state expense. The creation of the Special Division was approved by the Pennsylvania Legislature on 15 May 1861, quote, for the purpose of suppressing insurrections or to repel invasions, end quote. The men were trained at camps of instruction in Easton, Pittsburgh, Westchester, and Harrisburg. The training camp near Harrisburg was named Camp Curtin for the governor. Their first commander was George A. McCall, who was buried at Christ Church Burial Ground. Later division commanders were John F. Reynolds of Lancaster, George Gordon Meade, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and Samuel W. Crawford, also buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. 
Langhorne joined a company called the Morgan Rifles that was being formed at Duncannon. Headquarters were established partly at the Duncannon Iron Company's warehouse and partly in front of the Topley Hotel, almost simultaneously with the attack on Fort Sumter. On the first day of recruitment, 30 volunteers were secured. Citizens of Perry County vied with each other to lend their assistance, including Langhorne's older brother, John. Women donated Havelocks, the coverings attached to a hat to protect the neck from sun and bad weather, and haversacks, single-strap shoulder bags, which could be used for stores and rations. On May 27th, in the presence of their townsmen, after hearing a sermon by the Reverend Daniel Hartman in the Methodist Church, the men were put upon railroad cars and carried to Harrisburg. When the men elected company officers, 27-year-old Langhorne Wister was named captain. The company entered the service at Harrisburg as Company B of the Bucktails a legendary unit named for their distinctive hat decoration, the tail of a deer. The 13th Pennsylvania Reserve Regiment, also known as the 42nd Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry, the 1st Pennsylvania Rifles, Kane's Rifles, or simply the Bucktails, was a volunteer infantry regiment. It was one of three regiments recruited and formed by Colonel Thomas Leeper Kane, son of U.S. District Judge John Kinsing Kane and younger brother of famed Arctic explorer Elijah Kent Kane, whom I talked about in podcast number two a couple of years ago. Both John Kinsing and Elijah Kent Kane are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. All of these men were recruited because of their sharpshooter skills. They were sort of equivalent to the special forces. The Bucktails were part of the famed Pennsylvania Reserve Division in the Army of the Potomac for much of the early and middle parts of the war. They served in the Eastern Theater in many important battles, including Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Gettysburg. On 4 June 1861, they were mustered in for three years' service. Company A, or Anderson Life Guards, were recruited from lumbermen and mountaineers in Tioga County. Company B was Langhorne Worcester's unit from Duncannon. Company C, the Cameron County Rifles, was another regiment recruited by Kane. Company D, Raftsman Guards, featured lumbermen and was formed at Warren. Company E, the Tioga Rifles, were lumbermen and mountaineers from Tioga County. Company F, the Irish Infantry, was recruited in much chunk, Carbon County, and consisted of miners. Company G, the Elk County Rifles, was the third regiment formed by Colonel Kane and came down the Susquehanna. Company H, the Wayne Independent Rifles, was formed at Kennett Square. Company I were the McKean County Rifles, and Company K, Raftsman's Rangers, were recruited in Clearfield County among men also skilled with the axe and the rifle. And rather than muskets, the Bucktails carried breech-loading Model 1859 Sharps rifles, normally only issued to sharpshooters. Now, if you're confused, I don't blame you. They really did have five different names. The Kane Rifle Regiment of the Pennsylvania Reserves, the First Rifles, the Bucktails, the 42nd Regiment, and the 13th Reserves. I will refer to them as the Bucktails from this point forward. The Bucktails left Camp Curtin on 22 June 1861 to join Colonel Lou Wallace, who was later the author of the novel Ben-Hur, in the vicinity of Cumberland, Maryland, but they did not see action. When they returned to Harrisburg and joined the rest of the Pennsylvania Reserve Corps, they were detached to the Army of the Potomac near Washington, D.C. Their first major encounter was the Battle of Drainsville on 20 December 1861 in Fairfax County, Virginia. Drainsville marked the first time in the East that a Union force had bested their Confederate enemy, inflicting 230 casualties while suffering only 71 and driving the enemy from the field. 
In May 1862, companies C, G, H, and I were detached and participated in the Valley Campaign against Stonewall Jackson at Harrisonburg, Cross Keys, Catlett Station, Chitilly, and Second Bowl Run. The rest of the regiment, including Langhorne Worcester's B Company, went with the Army of the Potomac and participated in the Peninsula Campaign, starting with the Seven Days' War on 26 June 1862 in Hanover County, Virginia. Under the leadership of Major Roy Stone, the regiment saw action with the 1st Brigade under Brigadier General John Reynolds at the opening Battle of Beaver Dam Creek, also known as the Battle of Mechanicsville, the Battle of Gaines Mill, sometimes known as the Battle of Chickahominy River, the Battle of Savages Station, when the main body of the Union Army of the Potomac began a general withdrawal toward the James River, the Battle of Glendale, which also has six other names, and the last match of the Seven Days Battle, the Battle of Malvern Hill, which is also known as the Battle of Poindexter's Farm. This was the climax of the Peninsula Campaign. Worcester suffered a slight injury of his ankle at the Battle of Mechanicsville, but he did not leave the field or give up the command. During this week-long campaign, the Union suffered 1,734 killed, 8,062 wounded, and 6,053 missing or captured. The Confederacy's losses were nearly twice as high, with 3,500 dead and 16,000 wounded. After the Peninsular Campaign in early September 1862, Langhorne Worcester returned to Philadelphia with Major Roy Stone of Company D with the intention of raising another brigade. They ran out of time. They only managed to raise two regiments, the 149th and the 150th Pennsylvania Infantry. Stone took charge of the former, Worcester the latter, and the 150th Regiment joined the defenses at Washington, D.C., with Company K detached to serve as bodyguard for President Lincoln for the duration of the war. The rest of the 150th joined the Army of the Potomac in February 1863. It served in the 2nd Brigade under Major Stone, the 3rd Division, under Command Major General Abner Doubleday, the 1st Corps, Commander Major General John Reynolds, during the Battle of Chancellorsville from 30 April through 6 May 1863. Less than two months later, the 150th Regiment Bucktails headed into battle at Gettysburg with a strength of 397 men. It saw action on all three days. On the opening day of July 1st, Major Stone's brigade was posted on McPherson's Ridge, south of the Chambersburg Pike. They held against numerous Confederate assaults, but Stone was injured in the hip and the arm and relinquished command to Colonel Langhorne Worcester. Worcester led the regiment for the rest of the 1st and the 2nd. On July 3rd, the final day of the battle, Langhorne Worcester was shot through the mouth with a mini ball during Pickett's charge and had to relinquish his command, which he had assumed only two days before. The Bucktails lost 850 of their 1,250 men as dead, injured, or missing. Every field officer, save one, had been killed or seriously wounded. A Worcester came home to Belfield to recuperate and recovered enough to return to duty at the Mine Run Campaign in late November and early December 1863. Langhorne Worcester resigned his commission on 22 February 1864 and returned to Duncannon to work with his brothers in the steel mills. On 13 March 1865, he was breveted to Brigadier General. He had barely reached his 30th birthday. I talked about brevet ranks in podcast number 20, Send the Marines. I could find no post-war photo of Langhorne, so I do not know the extent of his face and mouth injuries. Years later, Worcester returned to Gettysburg anonymously and took a tour. The guide, another veteran, stopped in the road where Pickett's division charged across and pointed to a spot nearby. Just there, General Wister was wounded. A hush 
fell on the group as they looked at each other, and the guide thought that he had made a horrible blunder. A gentleman stepped up to him and explained, This is General Wister, who did confirm what the guide had said. Yes, you are right. It was on that very spot that I was shot. He returned to the iron business after the war and made a good living, although his health began to fail in 1889. In 1874, he ran unsuccessfully for Congress as a Republican from Duncannon. On 19 March 1891, Langhorne Wister died at Belfield in Germantown in his 57th year. His estate was valued at $100,000. Most of it was bequeathed to a number of relatives, but he did leave $1,000 to Germantown Hospital. He was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, lots 314 North, 316 through 318. The fourth and fifth sons, born at Belfield to William and Sarah Logan Fisher Wister, were Jones Wister, 1839-1917, and Francis Wister, 1841-1905. Jones was the family biographer, and late in life he wrote Jones Wister's Reminiscences, which was a great help in researching this podcast. He's buried at St. James the Less Cemetery, more or less around the corner from Laurel Hill Cemetery. Francis became a colonel with the 2115th Pennsylvania Volunteers. He is buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Yaden. Both were in the family steel business, and both played cricket. The sixth and youngest son, Rodman Wister, was born in 1844 and grew up in the full and noisy Belfield household. A family legend tells of the time that the Champlost Woods, north of Belfield, were infested by gray squirrels, so many that they were a source of trouble to the owners. They gnawed at the fruit. They ate at pretty much everything they could find. At last, Uncle Charlie Fox invited the Wister brothers over to kill them. So early one autumn morning, Rodman went there with a dog and a gun. And before the Fox household had awakened, Rodman had killed six large gray squirrels. And then all hell broke loose. All the gardeners and stablemen ran down to the woods armed with scythes and pitchforks to arrest and punish the impudent intruders. Imagine their surprise to find only one small pre-teenage boy. They captured him and in triumph marched him and his half-dozen victims to the house to be punished by the irate judge. Now, Judge Fox was quite nearsighted. He did not recognize Rodman. He threatened all sorts of punishments for the trespasser on his sacred premises. He scowled, he coughed, he demanded in a loud voice, Who are you? And what do you mean by coming to shoot my squirrels? Rodman, although only a boy of 12, was not frightened before so many accusers. He bravely stood his ground and confronted him. Why, Uncle Charlie, you yourself invited me to come and kill your second pair robbers. You said the squirrels were stealing your fruit, that the gardeners could not keep them out of your garden, and that you wanted to be rid of them. The situation was straightened out to everyone's amusement. I could find no information about where Rodman was educated or whether he went to college, but it appears Rodman saw his older brothers all sign up for the war, and he wanted his share of adventure. So even though he was only 16 when the Civil War started, according to Ella Wister Haynes, Rodman ran away from home to become a drummer boy. From as far back as the ancient days of Babylon, the beating of animal skins rallied the troops on the field, sent signals between the masses, and scared the enemy half to death. During the Revolutionary War, drummers in both the Continental and English ranks marched bravely into the fight with no more protection than their drum and sticks. Drummer boys during the American Civil War were younger than their predecessors from the Revolution, but more advanced in their playing. Each drummer 
was required to play variations of the 26 rudiments, and each soldier understood what the drummer was saying. A drum rudiment is one of a number of relatively small patterns which form the foundation for more extended and complex drumming patterns. I'm going to play you three common Civil War drum calls here. Assembly on the battalion, first sergeant's report for orders, and forward. I've placed more than a dozen more at the end of the podcast after the bibliography. Assemble on the battalion. First sergeants, come for orders. Additional rudiments included the double stroke roll, paradiddles, flamadiddles, flam accents, flamacues, ruffs, single and double drags, ratamacues, and sextuplets. Drummers were assigned to foot troops. Trumpet and bugle players tended to be assigned to cavalry units, as it was obviously too cumbersome to use drums on horseback. They were non-combatants, they did not carry weapons, but at times the buglers and drummers were involved in the action. Drum and bugle calls were used on the battlefield to issue commands, though the sound of battle tended to make such communication difficult. When the fighting began, drummers generally moved to the rear and stayed away from the shooting. But Civil War battlefields were extremely dangerous places, and many drummers were killed or wounded. Drummers were often assigned to other duties in camp, and during the fighting, the drummers were often expected to help the medical personnel, serving as assistants in makeshift field hospitals. There are accounts of drummers having to assist surgeons during battlefield amputations, helping to hold down the patients. One additional gruesome task, young drummers might be called up to carry away the severed limbs. Military drums were made from ash, maple, or other pliable woods. They were about 18 inches deep prior to the Civil War, but they were shortened to 12 to 14 inches deep and 16 inches in diameter to accommodate younger and shorter drummers. Ropes were joined all around the drum and were manually tightened to create tension that stiffened the drum head, making it playable. The drums were hung low from leather straps. Regulation drumsticks were usually made from rosewood and were about 17 inches in length. Ornamental paintings were common for Civil War drums, especially pictures of the Union Eagles and Confederate shields. After serving as a drummer boy, 19-year-old Rodman mustered in with Company G, 8th Pennsylvania Militia, on 12 September 1862, but was mustered out 13 days later. When the threat of a southern invasion of Pennsylvania became real in mid-June 1863, he enlisted as a private in Landis Independent Light Artillery Regiment, a militia battery of 87, on 27 June 1863. But when the threat was over, the entire unit mustered out 30 July 1863, about five weeks later. But Rodman had contracted typhoid fever at Gettysburg and was not doing well. Older brother Jones, who had served at Gettysburg in another unit, was sent back there by their father to find and care for Rodman. Jones found Rodman stretched out on the bottom of an ambulance wagon. Jones got Rodman to the home of a family friend in Chambersburg and nursed him there. Jones commented, Rodman craved ice, which was scarce and expensive, but I managed to keep him supplied from a hotel in the neighborhood. After his recovery, Rodman returned to the family steel business. 
1872, he married Eliza Irwin Black of Pittsburgh and moved to 1014 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. They had two children, Langhorn H. and Rodman M. Rodman became president of the Duncan and Iron Company, secretary of the Charity Ball Committee for 20 years, secretary of the 7th Ward Organized Charity, and president of the Young American Cricket Club until its amalgamation with the Germantown Cricket Club when he then became vice president. He and his wife were both members of Philadelphia's society class. They gave lavish parties. They were constantly in the society pages of the local newspapers. Eliza became a renowned player of the card game Whist and was frequently a winner in local tournaments. She also became a vocal opponent of women's suffrage her chief argument being that women of a certain class would be likely to sell their votes to the highest bidder. In 1910, Rodman was the victim of a robbery when a pocket watch, which had been in the family for more than 50 years, was taken. A few months later, a chastened thief slipped into a Catholic church in Germantown and confessed his crime to the priest and gave him the watch to return to Rodman. This was reported in the Philadelphia Inquirer on 9 September 1910. In August of 1913, Rodman Worcester died at the Media Hospital in Media at age 68 from hardening of the arteries. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, Lots 314N, 316 to 318. Eliza joined him there in 1930, outliving him by 17 years. Now, Rodman's son, Rodman Mifflin Wister, born in 1890, went to Penn in 1912, but he did not graduate. He served as a lieutenant in the Ambulance Corps during the war. He created a mild sensation in spring of 1924 when he eloped to Elkton, Maryland, and married Helen Beverly Bowden. Before the heyday of Las Vegas and... Reno, Elkton was the runaway marriage capital of the United States. Cornell Wilde, Joan Fontaine, Debbie Reynolds, Martha Ray, John and Martha Mitchell, Willie Mays, Pat Robertson all got married in Elkton, Maryland. Later that year, Rodman apparently lost much of his personal wealth with bad investments in the stock market. In December, while his wife recuperated with her family at the shore from an automobile accident, He went to stay at his old fraternity house, Delta Phi, at 3453 Woodland Avenue. On the morning of 23 December 1922, he was found dead on the floor of the bedroom, dressed in his pajamas and robe, and the gas was on. The deputy coroner called the cause of death suicide while in a temporary spell of despondency. Members of the fraternity insisted that it was accidental that he fell and his head struck the gas valve, forcing it open. Rodman Mifflin Wister was buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The science of horticulture dates to at least the days of ancient Persia. Horticulture primarily differs from agriculture in two ways. First, it generally covers a smaller scale of cultivation using small plots of mixed crops rather than large fields of single crops. Secondly, horticultural cultivations generally include a wide variety of crops, even including fruit trees with ground crops. Agricultural cultivations, however, as a rule, focus on one primary crop. Horticulture is also similar to botany, which is the science of plant life. There's obviously a lot of cross-pollination of information. In the United States, many pre-Revolutionary War colonists worked in horticulture. Locally, John Bartram, born in Derby in 1699, was called the greatest natural botanist in the world by none other than Carl Linnaeus. He started what is known as Bartram's Garden in 1728 at his farm in King Sessing, which is now part of South Philadelphia. 
Thomas Nuttall, born in England in 1786, lived and worked in America from 1808 until 1841. He named the plant Wisteria after someone we heard about earlier, Caspar Wistar. And even school children learn about Luther Burbank and George Washington Carver. But another Wister carrying the Caspar name, John Caspar Jack Wister, born in Germantown in 1887, became one of the preeminent horticulturalists of the world in the 20th century. He was the son of William Roch Wister and Mary Rebecca Eustace, brother of Mary Channing Wister, who married their cousin Owen. Jack's interest in trees and flowers and fruits and greenhouses began at the family homes Belfield and Worcester in Germantown. He could often be found standing and staring at a local tulip tree, utterly absorbed. He started following the gardeners around and peppering them with questions. He read all the books that he could find on plant life. Jack attended Harvard University, graduated in 1909. Among his classmates in that class of 1909 were the poet T.S. Eliot, Boston Post editor Richard Grozier, military surgeon Eliot Cutler, Nazi leader Ernst Putzi Hans Stegel, and Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. He continued his Harvard studies at the School of Landscape Architecture, supplementing that program with courses at New Jersey Agricultural College, which is now part of Rutgers University. He headed to New York and Philadelphia to gain experience with some landscape architects before enlisting on 10 July 1917, three months after the United States entered the Great War. According to letters he wrote to his family during the war, Wister spent most of his time in France in various ordnance departments, being promoted to sergeant in November. But he never strayed far from arboretums and botanical gardens while he was in Europe. He would often send plants and clippings back to his friends, Mr. and Mr. Arthur Hoyt Scott, amateur horticulturalist. Arthur Hoyt Scott was the second president of Scott Paper Company and the inventor of the paper towel on a roll. The Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College is named for him. He is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Jack got his discharge papers in May 1919, started working as a landscape architect and horticulturalist. He was a triple threat. He conducted the experiments, he was an excellent teacher of his methods, and he actually carried out his ideas in the Philadelphia area. He worked for more than 50 years on the campus of Swarthmore and was the first director of the Arthur Hoyt Scott Horticultural Foundation's 240-acre public garden with its 5,000 species of trees and shrubs. Worcester was architect for 40 of those acres. Swarthmore awarded him with an honorary degree of science in 1942. He moved to the campus in 1945 and he stayed there for the rest of his life. Jack planted plant families together within the garden. His goal was to seek out hardy plants that can be grown without special care in eastern gardens. Whenever he was asked his favorite flower, he would say, whatever is blooming, and that changes from day to day. In 1946, Jack became the first director of the 600-acre John J. Tyler Arboretum in Lima, Pennsylvania, not far from Media, and just six and a half miles from the Swarthmore campus. He served as both Arboretum and Bird Sanctuary director for more than 20 years. Now, the Tyler Arboretum is not related to Tyler State Park, which is in Bucks County. Among the Tyler Arboretum's special gardens is the Worcester Rhododendron Garden, showcasing more than 500 varieties. If this sounds like a lot, Worcester confessed in a newspaper interview in 1982 that at one time he had more than 600 varieties of lilies. Jack wrote several popular gardening books, including Four Seasons in Your Garden, 1938, Bulbs for American Gardens, 1930, and Lilacs for America, 1943. He was the recipient of 17 national and international awards. 
John Casper Wister died at his Swarthmore home on 27 December 1982 at age 95. He was buried at the William Roch Wister plot, not far from the gatehouse, section M, lot 128. But warning, the stones are very close to the road under an evergreen, and you might miss them because the names are carved on the other side that faces away from the road. His sister, Frances Ann Wister, is buried in the same plot. And as I said, I'll talk more about her in a future podcast. Now, Jack Wister spent his life absorbed in plants and flowers. But at age 73, he fell in love with another horticulturalist, Gertrude Smith, and they married. Gertrude had served as Jack's assistant director at the Scott Arboretum from 1955 to 1960. She was an honors graduate from the 1927 class of the University of Wisconsin, where she majored in horticulture. She started her own business in garden planning and maintenance before starting at Swarthmore. Mrs. Wister also served as editor of the National Gardener and assistant editor of the Women's Home Companion Gardener book. For more than 25 years, Mrs. Wister served on the board of trustees of the Tyler Arboretum. She was also acting director from 1944 to 1977. Mrs. Wister had received a number of local, state, and national awards, including achievement awards from the Pennsylvania and Massachusetts Horticultural Societies and the Gold Medal Award from the American Rhododendron Society. She died at 94 in 1999 and is buried with John Casper, her husband. Next time in the May 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's Encore, four performing artists of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill. William Wood was an early Philadelphia actor who both played and managed the Walnut Street Theater for many years. Mary Ann Lee, our Mary Ann, is considered America's first professional ballerina. Frank Mayo was one of the best-known actors of the late 19th century, an early proponent of realism in acting, and a man who made a career out of playing Davy Crockett on the stage. And Wedgwood Noel was an actor who also produced 144 plays and more than 140 movies during his long, productive career. I will talk about all four of these Philadelphia men and women in the May episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bella Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with limited participants who are willing to follow the CDC recommendations for masks. And we still have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. LaurelHillCemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. 
And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours that I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tour number one gives you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill story, where the plot thickens. I also invite you to hear the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast and some more drum calls. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. So many references for this podcast. There were four online articles from a series called Belfield and Wakefield, a link to LaSalle's past. It's on the LaSalle University website. I used four of these extensively. Dave Stanock's The Life of William Roch Wister, 1827-1911. Raymond Delasio's John Wister, active iron industrialist. Jen Merritt's Wisters and Fishers in the Civil War, and Andy Guiazda's John Caspar Wister. Also, Jones Wister's Reminiscences by Jones Wister was invaluable. That's J.B. Lippincott Company, Philadelphia, 1920. You can find a PDF copy online. The Diary of Sidney George Fisher, 1862, by Sidney George Fisher. That was from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, July 1964, volume 88, number 3, pages 328 through 367. Wikipedia has a really nice article on the Philadelphia cricket team. I do recommend that if you're into cricket or you want to know more about that. There's an article called The Romantic Days of Juniata Charcoal Iron by Paul T. Fagley. That's from Pennsylvania History, a journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, volume 83, number 2. Special issue, the Juniata Valley. That was spring of 2016, pages 187 to 230. History of the Bucktails Cane Rifle Regiment of the Pennsylvania Reserve Corps by O.R. Howard Thompson and William H. Rauch. It was Electric Printing Company, Philadelphia, 1906. That's also available as a PDF online. Sarah Butler Wister's Civil War Diary by Fanny Kemble Wister and Sarah Butler Wister. The Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, July 1978, Volume 102, Number 3, pages 271 to 327. And finally... There are two excellent lessons on YouTube about Civil War drumming. One is called Civil War Drum Calls. The other is simply called Civil War Drumming. As promised, here are more of the drum calls. Rally by sections. The assembly. color.
assemble on the battalion. Drummer's call. First sergeants, come for orders. Sergeants come for orders. Corporals come for orders. The roll, this is to cease fire. upon the reserve. Firing. Cease firing. Change direction to the right. direction to the left. Lie down. Rise up. upon the battalion. See you next time. Stay safe. Stay well.